Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We are going through the 12 weeks of Torah reading, and we are in the book of Genesis. And you cannot expect me to be producing podcasts as quickly as I am for the duration of this series, but because the front matter of Genesis is so loaded with complexities, I felt burdened to put out yet another one. Uh, This is like three days in a row that I've produced a podcast, and I wanted to talk about Genesis chapter 6. We're all familiar with the flood narrative, and many of us have probably been in some uh, dialogue in the past about the Nephilim. And uh, in fact, the major motion picture Noah that came out highlighted the Nephilim, and obviously they're going for more of an entertainment angle than trying to be theologically correct. Uh, But still, the point remains that there is this record of these giants that are produced prior to the flood, and there is a great amount of ambiguity surrounding the nature of these creatures. And so we wanted to talk about that today and uh, just provide some insight or maybe to further confuse you if Uh, because I'm not going to give you a direct answer on that because it is shrouded in mystery. Uh, But Genesis chapter 6 records that the sons of God, in verse 2, saw the daughters of men and that they were attractive, and they took them as their wives. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. And at this point, God sees the wickedness of man, and he intends to flood the earth, and that's where the Noah narrative begins. So the sons of God is the first question. What are the sons of God? And most theologians agree that this is talking about the angelic beings. There are other places where the sons of God are referenced to as angelic beings. Uh, The book of Job refers to the sons of God, um, and there are other places. However, the book of Hebrews sort of indicates that the angelic beings are not the sons of God. (laughs) The writer says, of which of the angels has he ever said, you are my son? And you can find that in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1. And that question has caused some to say, no, the sons of God are not angelic beings. They are uh, some other group, uh, probably a group of people, maybe a group of people that were dedicated to God in some way. And so they would interpret Genesis chapter 6 much differently than those who view them as angels. But I think the majority view and the one that I tend to side with is that this is talking about angelic beings. And uh, I would just say that Hebrews chapter 1 is simply saying that that unique quality of son, something that special son, none of the angels were God's only begotten son. Uh, because God has got other sons. He's, Adam was a son. Israel is called a son. All of the kings would have been referred to as son because they were the anointed one of God. Um, but yet Jesus is God's only begotten son. So even though there are other types of sons and other um, beings that exist as the creation of God, 
Jesus is uniquely the Son of God in the fact that he is divine and he is the anointed one chosen for the task of delivering the people of God. And so the sons of God, I think, certainly could be a reference to the angelic beings. And I think comparing all of the places where that phrase is used, I think we can conclude that this is a group of angels. But they look down and they see that the daughters of man are attractive or that could be pleasing or desirable. Uh, so I don't know if they're looking at their physical features. They don't know what's causing them to be attracted to the daughters of man. We just don't have the information there. But if something about this group is looking at these daughters and they are desiring them as their own. Uh, maybe the desire isn't even in the creature themselves. Maybe they desire the position that they are in. Maybe they desire to be uh, on the earth and to have um, the, the purpose that mankind has rather than to um, be in their position in heaven. Who knows what is desirable about these women, but the point is that they do desire them and they take them as their wives and they produce children with them. And some stop right there and they say, how in the world can an angel produce a child with a human? Because the angelic beings, well, Jesus said in heaven, they're neither married nor given in marriage. And uh, we certainly often assume that there is an anatomical difference between an angel and a human. However, I would say and suggest that just because you're not married in heaven does not mean that you don't have uh, the biological anatomy attached. Um, and that certainly I would also say that a angelic being can take various forms. In fact, most of the time when angels show up, they are initially supposed to be men, uh, the angels that show up to Abraham uh, to tell him that he's going to have Isaac. Abraham's response is, let's kill the fatted calf and eat together. And if an, if an angel showed up to me with wings and a harp and it was glowing and had a halo, I wouldn't say, are you hungry? Uh, I would assume they eat a different type of food, not the fatted calf. But the fact that they showed up and looked like men, Abraham just wanted to feed them like you would a man. And so whether that was their normal presence or if that was them assuming a presence, um, that would give us the, the idea that perhaps they are compatible with humanity. Uh, furthermore, if we're going to view the serpent in Genesis 3 as being Satan, who also was a, an angel uh, before his fall, then we can also conclude that perhaps the angelic realm can assume different forms. They can take on flesh, and furthermore, they can possess bodies. We do know that for a fact. They can possess bodies, and so maybe they go into the women um, through possessing different men on the earth. And so it's not that an angel in and of itself in its own form is taking a human woman to be the wife and producing children with them, but perhaps they are possessing men and then going into the women. And so we have an actual man and an actual woman who are being married and who are producing children. Uh, but the offspring is the real question here. The offspring is the creatures that are derived from this union. 
and they are referred to as the Nephilim, and they are referred to as giants. And so that's one way to interpret this, and um, I think it's the best way to interpret it, and the reason why is because I think we see this show up in other places. Uh, for instance, if you go over to the book of Second Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament, we get some insight into this event. It says in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So he's talking to his audience about sensuality, about sexual immorality. And he goes on to say in verse 4, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And he goes on to give some other examples, but then concludes in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And the idea here is that in the context of sexual immorality, Peter references the days of Noah and the angels, he calls them, who, were, who had sinned and were cast into hell or into uh, Tartarus is the Greek word here. So maybe not necessarily hell, but maybe the pit. And this is a place where they are reserved until the day of judgment. And that's how the author here concludes. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, just like Noah, from the trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So the idea is that these angelic beings who left their heavenly abode and came down and took uh, the, the women in Genesis 6 and produced children with them is something they were not allowed to do. They weren't permitted to do this. They, they did this against the will of God. And in doing so, it brought judgment upon them. They're now reserved in the pit until the day of judgment. And that's not all angels, and that's not even all fallen angels. That's this particular set of angels who sinned in this particular way. They are reserved in the pit until the day of judgment. So they're just stuck. They can't torment people on the earth. They can't sin anymore. Um, they're just stuck until the day of judgment, and then they'll be released and cast into the lake of fire. Um, so their wrongdoing has resulted in a in an eternity of punishment. They don't even have a brief time to torment people on the earth or do whatever demons like to do. They have this special punishment that keeps them reserved. Uh, Jude also talks about this as well. If you go over to the book of Jude in verse 5, this is a one-chapter book, so just verse 5 of Jude, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, and he goes on to talk about sexual, sexual immorality some more. And so once again, he's tying these angelic beings from Noah's day, and he's uh, tying what they did to sexual immorality, and so all this evidence on the table seems to suggest that these angelic beings in Genesis chapter 6 left heaven against God's will 
and through either taking their own form or um, possessing a human body, they took wives and laid with them and conceived these Nephilim who became giants on the land. And the history behind these Nephilim, we don't have a biblical history necessarily, but we do have extra biblical writing that describes what happened with these Nephilim. Now, anything that's not biblical, we can't suggest that it's authoritative and we can't necessarily believe it 100%. Um, but we read things all the time that aren't biblical, that aren't a, an authorized, inspired text, and that doesn't mean that it's not true just because it's not. Uh, for instance, if I read in an encyclopedia that George Washington was born on a certain day, I don't have to dismiss that just because it's not biblical. It can be true even if it's not biblical. But I wouldn't go to the encyclopedia and say, this is going to be 100% true 100% of the time. No, I only say that about the Bible. And so when I use these other books, like uh, the book of Enoch is a pseudepigraphal writing that was not in the scripture. It's not a part of God's inspired word. But it does write a lot about the events that took place in the Bible, and it does give a very elaborate, detailed description of the Nephilim and what they were and what came to pass in those days. And so can I trust everything that it says? I don't know. Probably not. Um, there's probably some embellishments, but it does at least give us a look into what the beliefs were in the days that this was written. It at least gives us an idea of what the common consensus was. And furthermore, it seems that Second Peter and the book of Jude both quote the book of Enoch. And so Tom Schreiner is one of the leading experts in New Testament theology uh, today. He is a professor at Southern Baptist, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he suggests, and I believe this, that because Second Peter and because Jude quote from this book, then at least the sections within which they are quoting, those sections are believed to be true. It's assuming that the audience knows the text of First Enoch, and it's assumed that because they are quoting it within the context of Scripture, because they are inspired as they write, that they are showing that the depiction of the Nephilim, the depiction of these fallen angels, the depiction of all that we've just been discussing for the last few minutes, all of that is indeed true. Even if the whole book is not true, they're not endorsing all of First Enoch, but they are at least endorsing the parts of it that describe the fallen angels and what took place back then. And so these Nephilim become um, the children of the uh, angelic beings who leave heaven, and they go and they take wives, and they end up causing all kinds of chaos in the world. Because they're giants, they consume too much, they become evil, and they oppress and devour people in their houses, and even go after to eat people, it says. Uh, and so this is the evil that perhaps was taking place during the time of Noah, and that's why God decides to flood the earth and to destroy these people. And so that's just a brief overview of the idea of the Nephilim, and uh, we're going to conclude there. Just wanted to give you a glimpse of what that could be and what I believe it to be. It's weird. I understand that. It's hard to 
reconcile that with the idea that humans and angels are completely different, uh, but maybe that's the problem. Maybe we view them as more different than what they should be. Uh, there are obviously cherubim and seraphim who are completely different. They've got wings. They've got um, sometimes multiple faces, faces of bears and lions and humans and other things, and that doesn't look like a human that we know at all. But the regular angels, the, those that aren't cherubim or seraphim, like I said, often appear, and they just seem like men. And maybe that's what common angels look like most of the time. It's hard to say. Um, but we certainly shouldn't dismiss the possibility that they could either possess a person and take a wife and produce children or assume a, a presence that is human-like in form and had the anatomical necessities to conceive children. Um, but all this is speculation, and it makes for fun conversation, but it's not that important at the end of the day. The important thing that we need to get from all of these texts is that sexual immorality is not permitted in the kingdom of God and that it will be punished, and those who seek righteousness will be preserved until that day of judgment. And so uh, we'll pick this up next time on the Bible Brush Up.